Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor, and we are thrilled this week to be introducing a very special guest expert, who we might refer to as a guest spurt, depending on how much we like to challenge our own mouths. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was horrifying. So our guest expert is Dr. Lucia Lorenzi, who is a scholar, activist, and writer based out of Vancouver, BC. She specializes in trauma theory and Canadian literature and drama with a broad focus on sexualized and gendered violence in literature and other media. She is also an expert in the politics of coziness. Welcome, Lucia. Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) I love watching you lean into that mic. It's very like radio personality. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought since we have a coziness expert on this episode and since this is the first episode we are recording in the autumnal season and because we are having a conversation today about trauma which can be a hard topic I thought maybe we should Mm -hmm. spend uh the sorting chat chatting about not sorting but cozy things how do we feel about having a conversation about coziness very good. I think this is great. Very positive. Mm-hmm. 10 out of 10 would have this conversation. Fantastic. Yeah. Good choice, Hannah. The ethos of coziness in many ways is inspired by friend of the podcast, Brenna's child, Groot. That is a pseudonym. That is a publicity pseudonym. <laughs> Who, uh, as a younger child, used to demand that people, quote unquote, make baby cozy. Mm-hmm. It was a concern mm-hmm. when he was feeling inadequately cozy. He would say, make baby cozy. And then you would like <laughs> wrap wrap him in blankets. And so uh, I would like to ask of the two of you, what are you doing right now to uh, to make baby cozy? Lucia, do you want to start being our, being our cozy expert? Yeah. I'm wearing my favorite cozy sweater, which is this gray sweater. And in also gray, shiny applique says the word maybe on it and it just really for me just brings to mind like I could do something but you know maybe (laughs) I love love ambivalence as a cozy mood oh yeah ambivalence is a is a weighted blanket (laughs) I also feel like me you have been leaning hard into it being crisp season in Vancouver by which I mean the season in which one makes a dish that consists of fruit topped with some sort of oat crumble, not a season in which the air is crisp. Yes. The air doesn't get really crisp in Vancouver. It just stays sort of soggy. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. That's not cozy. I have yeah. been like baking a lot. Like I really, I forgot how much I liked baking because it was summer. Mm-hmm. Marcel, is it cozy season yet in Edmonton? 
Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. But we've been having weird weather fluctuations. And so there will be days where it is unequivocally sweater weather. And then the next day it's like plus 23. And I'll be in my house and my house is very cold. And then I'll leave the house to go, I don't know, get a grocery or pick up my kiddo from daycare or whatever. And it's like a thousand degrees outside underneath all of my cozy sweaters and thick warm socks. And I really, really, really love cozy socks as a coziness strategy. And I hate socks when I'm hot. I hate having hot feet. I am such a baby with my feet. Like sometimes whenever I'm reading, you know, like historical fiction where people are forced to be in the army and they don't have boots that fit and they get blisters and they fall down and die in the trenches. And I'm like, yeah, I'd be dead in a second because I'd be like, oh, my boot doesn't fit. And I would just roll over into the ditch. (laughs) They'd be like, we've been walking for 25 minutes. We have so far to march. Trench foot is absolutely one of those things where I'm just like, absolutely not, no. (laughs) No trench foot for this guy. Not interested. I just can't. I can't. My feet, my feet are my weakest link. I am weeping. (laughs) Sorry, this was supposed to be a segment about coziness. Yeah. Anyway, love blankets, Mm. big fan of hugging cats. Shall we move on? Yeah. Let's do it. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, Marcel, did you know we've been Mm -hmm. saying it wrong this whole time? Apparently it's just revision, (laughs) singular. (laughs) And by it, I mean the... The segment where we summarize our discussion so far and ask some new questions of the text. Yeah, that was a bit of news. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. We're charmingly Ah. foreign and don't understand how British things work. It's very true. It's It's very true. Part of our appeal. So, Mm -hmm. so far, we have talked about Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone from four different perspectives. We have looked at it as a chosen one narrative and talked about conventional narrative structures and how those inform, you know, the way that Harry encounters the wizarding world, the way that people respond to Harry. And then we talked about Orientalism and we introduced the idea of discourses and particularly discourses that produce ideas of the other and the way that we can see Orientalism as a discourse showing up in descriptions of the goblins in the wizarding world, for example, or Professor Quirrell as a villain in this first book. Then we looked at animals as an example of ideology, the sort of ideologies that underpin discourses. And in this particular episode, we looked at the ideological distinction between the human and the animal, the idea of the human as other than animal. And we looked at like a bunch of examples of magical creatures in the books and how those are sort of examples of that ideology at work. And then in the last episode, we looked at another 
extremely important example of ideology at work, which is <laughs> class, which is kind of the ideology that the whole idea of ideology came from, really. Wild. It's theorists <laughs> of class who, and of capitalism, who sort of first came mm-hmm. up with the idea of ideology as this sort of imagined relation to the real conditions of our collective existence. And so we looked at class and how its logic sort of structure the Harry Potter world, We've already covered so much ground talking about this book, but in this episode, we're going to turn to a theory that's a little less about the ideologies that the Wizarding World is built on and a little bit more about the narrative itself, both in terms of what happens to Harry and the other characters and in terms of how what happens is communicated. So in some sense, we're sort of dipping back to a familiar segment from the original run of this podcast that we called The Boy Who Narrated <gasps> that was dedicated to <laughs> to looking at Harry's unreliable narration and how once you really start looking for it, you can really see that like the books are narrated from the perspective of Harry. And so there are gaps and absences and things that we aren't told right away and things that get corrected and become clearer in later books as he grows up. And that whole idea of gap and absence and what isn't being said and the unreliability of the narrator, that all really sort of opens us out into the rich and interesting world of trauma theory and thinking about, you know, how does trauma inform the way that a story is told, the way that a narrative is structured, the way that we get or don't get information. So we're going to take a bit of a deep dive into trauma theory itself in the next segment. But before we do that, I thought we should take a look at some of the moments in this book where we sort of see trauma arising, either in terms of actual subject matter, right? Like, where do we see the presence of trauma in this novel? Spoiler alert, there's a lot of it, but there's going to be more in later books, so that's fun. But also, you know, maybe starting to look at some of the more thematic or structural ways that trauma also appears in this book. So, Marcel, you want to you wanna start us off? Sure. I was thinking that I wish I had made a chart for this because... (laughs) I also wish you had made a chart. (laughs) I think it's my new prep strategy, but I didn't make one this time. So who knows what's going to come out of my head. One of the things that I remember thinking the first time I read the book, I think I was 19 at the time, is how much the films underplay the abusiveness of the Dursleys. And like, I get that in Hollywood, there's only so real you can be with a children's movie. But the thing that I find really remarkable about the first book is how very frankly abusive the Dursleys are to Harry. And it had not, until we started talking about this episode and preparing for this episode, it had not really occurred to me that that abusive relationship informs so much of the way that Harry perceives the world and the way that we then perceive the world through Harry. So I think that's something I would like to talk about more. It stood out to me so much on my rereading this time around, that line where he's at the first banquet at Hogwarts and, you know, the narrative says, which is sort of like a a third person inside Harry's head, 
The Dursleys had never exactly starved Harry, but he'd never been allowed to eat as much as he liked. And that's so, like, the way that even as a child, he is sort of self-correcting. Like, well, they never starved me. Mm-hmm. Like, even having to process that as an 11-year-old, like, what it is to live in a constant state of, like, not dying. Mm-hmm. They're not harming you so badly that you're life is at risk but you have lived in a perpetual state of not being given enough Mm -hmm. and it's such a powerful metaphor too for like the systematic way he has been deprived of care and emotional nourishment as well and like not only is it that he's never been given enough he's been never given enough in front of a peer somebody who's more or less the exact same age as him, who gets everything that he wants. And that's very different from, say, growing up in a situation where your caregivers cannot provide for you. This is a deliberate withholding from him. Yeah, which isn't to say that growing up in a situation of sort of persistent lack that isn't the spiteful wouldn't also be a traumatic experience, Mm, but that mm -hmm. this is a very particular trauma where he is being consistently singled out in a household where there's ample to go around and is being deliberately Mm -hmm. deprived as a punishment for being the person who he is. Yeah. I mean, I think like chapter one is just called the boy who lived through what (laughs) my God. Right. Like, so for a bit of context, like I am of the age where I, my peers were reading Harry Potter and I just didn't. And I first started reading them a couple of years ago and remember very vividly opening this up and being like the boy who lived were there others (laughs) <laughs> and just not having like, you know, which is, I get, you know, my sort of adult meta narrative in my head, but just the opening lines of the Dursleys talking about that they were perfectly normal and and my adult brain being like, what are you hiding? I am <laughs> deeply suspicious. I am deeply suspicious of this narrative from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, we can get into this later, but that's the challenge of coming to this text from an adult perspective versus like a child's perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That point, the calling him the boy who lived right up front. Like we know why he is called the boy who lived. He's the boy who lived because his parents were killed horribly in front of him as an infant. And so he is stamped right from the beginning in terms of that like formative trauma that is physically emblazoned on him. Like we talked in the first episode about the scar being a sign of his specialness that marks him as different and unique in the wizarding world, but is also, of course, a constant memory and physical sign of this originary trauma, that he is the boy who lived because his parents died, that he is always framed in terms of this traumatic event, this lack, this status as a survivor. And so we can talk about, you know, like survivor's guilt and what it means to be marked as a survivor of something that other people didn't survive. Grim. What a grim children's book. (laughs) You've also made a point here in the notes, Marcel, to get a little bit meta, that when I first read it, I was like, whoa, I didn't think about that, (laughs) which is about like the status of the whole wizarding world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is another thing that I hadn't really thought about in real sort of lived terms until starting to (laughs) get ready for this episode. But the Wizarding World is only 10 years post-war. 
And for a child, 10 years is eons. 10 years. Oh my gosh. 10 years is the difference between a 10-year-old and a 20-year-old. That's forever. But for an adult, 10 years is like, oh, I've been living in this city for 10 years and I don't expect to be here forever. (laughs) And so the fact that the Wizarding World is only 10 years post-war, I think can provide us with some new and interesting ways to think about the ways that trauma has impacted everything that Harry is coming to see for the first time. And so, you know, we make a lot of jokes about how there is no sense of pedagogy at Hogwarts or the fact that Snape is relentlessly cruel for no reason. And not to say that these things are excusable if we think of them through the lens of trauma, but that they might be explainable or understandable. Because if Snape, let's say Snape is 35 years old. Oh, no, uh, no, that's younger than me. He, at the age of 25, was an undercover operative working for Voldemort's army. And in this book, we don't have a sense of what that's like. But in book seven, we absolutely do have a sense of what that's like. Would you have been able to recover from that without therapy? (laughs) No, I mean, it's so powerful to reframe your thinking of all of these characters as veterans of a war as veterans Mm -hmm. of a war in which they lost their best friends. Their best friends, their families, their futures. It's an absolutely wild reframing. And I think it really does pick up on what Lucia was just saying about returning to these books as an adult, that you Mm -hmm. have, you know, so many different kinds of perspectives on them than you would as a child reader. But that sense of 10 years as a huge amount of time versus a very short amount of time and what it means Mm -hmm. to still be reeling from the losses of a decade ago is, you know, I feel like like an adult reading to bring into these texts. I also wonder, because Lucia, not to put you on blast, but you have not read <gasps> beyond, I believe, the third book. Oh, shit. How dare. Spoilers, Lucia. I'm so How sorry. Dare. I- <laughs> but I wonder if... I got real sad after book three. Okay. <laughs> And I was too sad to move to book four. And also that's when the books get bigger. And I was like, I can't carry this around my bag. So too heavy, too heavy. And it's been four years and I haven't finished it. So (laughs) this terrible thing happens where uh, Lucia starts to get into a thing that I really like. And then I get really excited about her being really into the thing. And then she (laughs) stops consuming it. And then the more I pressure her, the more she resists it because I think it just becomes a like, like, you're proving that I'm not the boss of her. So now she'll never <laughs> she'll never read these books to spite me. The good thing about reading them at this age is I haven't seen any spoilers. I just mm. don't know what mm-hmm. happens. And I think that's the thing of like, oh, I can never have this experience of reading it for the first time again. Mm. Guess I better mm-hmm. delay it by like putting four years <laughs> between, you know, reading book three and book four. Wow. One book every four years. Honestly, though. If you found book three to be too sad, I want to encourage you not to read book four or five or six or seven. They do get progressively sadder every book. Lucia, I wonder if coming to this book as a sophisticated adult reader, but also as somebody who hasn't read all the way through, 
if that aspect of like, this is a post-war world, these are adults who are grappling with their own traumas, like, does that come through at all? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's because having studied children's literature earlier in my career and studying trauma that I'm always trying to think of the larger ecosystem in which the trauma is occurring, which is partially kind of the thing about trauma theory itself, right? I think that I, as an adult reader, consider the broader ecosystem or context in which this, you know, protagonist is experiencing trauma. Mm. Because it's so evident in the first book that like, the trauma that Harry has experienced is connected to Hogwarts and that whole world. It's not just that he's coming to Hogwarts with some random thing that happened to him a long time ago. It's like, no, these are actually like actors within like the larger story. And then, you know, I got a sense that the pieces would kind of fall together. And I got enough of them through book three to sort of actually start to flesh that out a little bit more. Yeah. I don't think I'd really, really thought about it in terms of like the faculty are trying to teach and they're like exhausted and tired and their colleagues are gone or their friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Blake. Bleak. I swear this book is fun, but uh, it just. I mean, I, th- I thought it was until. <laughs> until. Until today. There's lots of sort of moments and questions that we can look to and say, like, oh, you know, I wonder if, if we can account for some of the odd behavior via like thinking about the sort of context of trauma in this world. As I was sort of thinking through illustrative moments, I came back to the mirror of Erised Mm -hmm. in particular as this moment where it's framed as being about desire and longing and dreams. Mm -hmm. That's what the mirror shows you, you know, your heart's deepest desire. And when Dumbledore worries about it, he says, you know, it doesn't do to dwell in dreams and forget to live. Mm -hmm. And so... The narrative absolutely frames it in terms of a sort of, to get Freudian, like a psychic lack. Mm -hmm. But the actual things that people see really suggest that, at least to some degree, what the mirror is revealing to you is some sort of fundamental traumatic lack. Mm -hmm. Like something that you're longing for it is so intense because it signals something that is missing from your life in a way that is like harming you right so harry sees family Mm -hmm. he's the boy who lived when his family died like there's no more fundamental absence for him ron sees specialness Mm -hmm. like being regarded as significant and noteworthy in the eyes of the people around him which is obviously a trauma that he carries through the whole series Mm -hmm. right it comes back again and again and again I know that sort of lots of people have hypothesized the significance of the warm socks that Dumbledore sees. But I think we can also think about that as pointing towards sort of family and intimacy and home life Mm -hmm. and things that he has also lost Mm -hmm. due to, you know, the sort of traumatic prehistory of his character. And it's interesting to think about that scene in particular as one that's telling us, you know, right at this turning point of the novel, one that's telling us like how to respond to trauma, like, all right, it's bad, things were bad, but our job is to like, keep going forward, (laughs) like, charge on, it was very sort of keep calm and carry on attitude, right? Doesn't do to dwell in dreams, just power forward, traumatized 11 year old. Hmm. What do you think? Hmm. (laughs) I feel complicated. (laughs) I think you're right. Hannah, I had not thought about the mirror of Erised in that way. (laughs) And I am fundamentally compelled 
by your reading of it. We also, on this podcast, tend to give Ron a really hard time. We do. Poor Ron. I know. I mean, Ron is a real dipshit later on, (laughs) on multiple (laughs) occasions. But as I said with Snape, we might think about these signals as demonstrations of his lack and his experience of trauma. And while that doesn't excuse his dipshittery later on, it might help us to maybe understand it a little bit more instead of just assuming that he's an asshole because he's an asshole, <laughs> that he's he's <laughs> operating out of a out of a place of feeling like he wasn't wanted. Yeah, he was the second last child before his mom managed to have the daughter she actually wanted to have. And it's easy for us as outsiders whose understanding of the narrative is mediated by Harry, who feels loved by this family, to see that Ron's family loves him. But that may not be Ron's experience of his family, right? Yeah, that's real. Can we talk about the sorting hat as a traumatic moment? Yes. Yeah, go. I think it's because, again, because I came to this so late in life and I had already taken a billion sorting hat tests online before where I'm like, I, (laughs) given the personality that I have shaped over the entirety of my life, am a Ravenclaw. I'm a Hufflepuff, by the way. (laughs) Hannah told me so. What are you saying? (laughs) I aggressively informed Lucia she was a Hufflepuff. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I still think it's rude. But I agree that it's correct. I'm not happy about it, but I'll live with it. In the movie as well, the sorting hat is this sort of kind of uncomfortable but joyful moment of like initiation. Mm -hmm. But I'm just reading in the text, Harry is so nervous. (laughs) And I'm reading it and Ron is like, it's some sort of test. Fred said it hurts a lot, but I think he was joking. (laughs) And Harry's like, oh my gosh, I'm having a panic attack. His imagining that he's going to get up on the stool and the hat's going to be like, ooh, sorry, not actually a wizard. You are going to have to go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And especially, I think, once he learns about, like, the different houses and what they mean and this idea that Gryffindor is like, you're brave. Like, Hufflepuff is good. Mm -hmm. Hufflepuff and, like, its tenderness certainly sort of makes sense. Like, if you sort of read all of them Mm -hmm. as, like, different responses to trauma, like, I'm going to be an intellectual. I'm going to be really empathic. I'm going to be a Slytherin. Like, it all kind of makes sense. Like, you could certainly, like, sort yourselves into houses based on that. And I think that that moment of having to undergo a test and his fear, his great fear that, like, failing a test isn't just, like, a crappy thing, but it is something that Mm -hmm. might cause him to be humiliated and punished, that makes the... Mm -hmm are you sure it's not Slytherin? And he's like, absolutely not. Get me out of this. (laughs) And like that sweaty feeling, like it's not celebratory. Like it's just (laughs) Harry being really sweaty after this horrible moment. (laughs) I love that idea of the houses as being the different ways you respond to trauma. That's so interesting. As a Ravenclaw, 100% identify with that like <laughs> well we're not gonna feel this because feelings feelings are a fool's game so if i could just intellectualize these experiences immediately that would be ideal thank you then i'll be fine and they can't hurt me yeah exactly because they're ideas now and ideas can't hurt you <laughs> oh wow <laughs> i've never had a feeling you can't prove it um but in that moment the idea that 
Harry is like not just choosing what house he's going to be in, but he's choosing the way he is going to respond to what has happened to him. Mm-hmm. Like, are you going to translate this prehistory into bravery and heroism and courage? Or are you going to translate it into protectionism? Sort of privilege and status mm-hmm. and protectionism, right? Because there is something about Slytherin that is really about sort of building walls around a select few mm-hmm. and sticking to your own kind. And that is also its own kind of trauma response. Absolutely. In that moment, he's sort of, you know, offered this choice, which does sort of make sense why it's framed as a choice for him. Mm -hmm. Because in that sense of like, how are you going to respond to things that happened to you that were outside of your control? You do have, hypothetically, some control over how you respond. Hypothetically. (laughs) Hypothetically. Well, you know what? We should investigate further. Whether or not you do have control, I feel like maybe we need a little bit of a little bit of theory to help us out. What a good idea. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Truly, there is no transfiguration more magical than turning our work into someone else's work. So let's head to Transfiguration Class, where our special guest, Lucia, is going to introduce us to trauma theory. All right. So, Lucia, before we get into what trauma theory is, could you maybe give us a kind of working definition of how we can understand trauma in this context? Yeah, absolutely. So trauma comes from the Greek word for wound. Oh, And so at the heart of trauma, you know, and sort of the way that it's been sort of classically understood is that something happens where there's something that sort of breaches that feeling of safety between inside and outside, that feeling of safety between your inside self and your outside world. And so trauma is, you know, experience that challenges our feelings of safety to the point Mm -hmm. of also fearing for our lives. And post-traumatic stress or the way that we respond to trauma is what happens afterwards. So it's about how we process an experience that challenged or threatened our feeling of safety, whether that's emotional safety, physical safety. And it affects one's ability to cope. One can often feel as if one is reliving the situation. So it also sort of affects the feeling of time, right? So that something Mm -hmm. is never completely passed. Or there's also an anticipation that it might happen again. And I think I should clarify too, Mm -hmm. and this might lead us into our discussion of trauma theory and its sort of critiques, that there's In the clinical sort of literature as well, this sort of little T versus big T trauma. So big T Mm -hmm. trauma, we might identify as very specific events that you can identify in a particular space and time. And little T trauma can be smaller events that that have a cumulative effect over time. Thank you. That was incredibly clear and helpful. Oh, my goodness. So... 
Trauma theory is a really interesting field. And I think that before I start, I should give some caveats as to what trauma theory isn't, because that might actually do the work of helping us to understand it. So trauma theory is not the same as the clinical practice of diagnosing and treating trauma, whether it broadly relates to depression or anxiety, but more specifically, the actual diagnosis, the disorder that the American Psychological Association has defined as post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, I am not a clinical practitioner. And I should also say too, because it's important that not every discipline that deals with the histories or the impacts of trauma is trauma theory. It's a very specific line of theory and study that, as I'll explain in a little bit, has its own really complicated histories and problems. But I want to preemptively make sure that just because other disciplines like maybe Orientalism or animal studies, Black studies, Indigenous studies, talk about trauma, that doesn't necessarily make them a part of trauma theory, if that helps. So trauma theory really comes out of the early 1990s through the 1990s, which is kind of interesting if we're thinking about the historical moment in which Rowling is um, rolling. I don't think I've ever said her name out loud. Rowling? I believe it is Rowling for the following reason. Here's a quick joke. How did Harry Potter get down the hill? Wow. Ask how. No, I won't. Ask you how. You can't make Ask me. me. Absolutely Ask not. Ask me how. No. Ask me how. Lucy, do it. No. Ask me how. Leaping. Walking. JK Rowling. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. Okay. That's smart. Okay. That's good. I respect that. Yep. Wow. So in the 1990s, you see this kind of convergence of folks who are working on various aspects related to trauma psychoanalysis, so which sees its origin in Freud in the early 1900s. History, especially post-war history and Holocaust studies in particular. And clinical practitioners are also, they're all kind of coming together to understand trauma, not just as an individual psychological phenomenon, but as a cultural phenomenon. And how has culture informed how we understand what trauma is? And so one of the big things that I want to talk about in terms of trauma theory is that the theory and kind of the way that we kind of think about trauma as an individual experience, the theory has also kind of helped define the experience as well. Say more about that, Lucy. <laughs> Sorry, I should respond with my voice, but I'm making this face that's like, ah. <laughs> so I'll just, I'll just make that noise ah. instead. Well, ah. earlier, we were talking about gaps or absences in the narrative. And trauma, as it's, you know, talked about in trauma theory, is really talking about this belatedness, so the delay between when you experience something, the actual trauma sort of at a point in linear time, and then when you sort of psychologically experience it. But what's really interesting is that there's a lot of work in trauma theory about the relationship between media, and that includes literature, and sort of the form of media and trauma. So, you know, if we think about things like the idea of flashbacks as being sort of video on repeat, that's really informed by the development of film throughout the 20th century. And that language of technology and how we tell stories has really brought itself into the clinical discourse around trauma theory as well. Oh, that's so interesting. Like the whole way that we think about like what it means to have memories or a relation to the past is like mediated by our actual sort of media mm-hmm. yeah. environment. The way that I like to think about it, and I think this is really helpful, uh, there's a theorist named Amit Pinchevsky, who's recently published a book called Transferred Wounds, which is really about media. 
And Pinchevsky says that this language around snapshots or flashbacks, they're not metaphors and they're not figures of speech. They're epistemological scaffolding. So they're actually the concepts upon which we build our understanding of trauma. And so when we're talking about texts or films that interrogate trauma, I think we need to think kind of critically about how the form itself is invested in a particular narrative around trauma, right? So if we have a book that has a lot of gaps or absences in it, does that reflect our understanding, particularly a clinical understanding, that traumatic memory involves things that you can't remember? It's so interesting to ask whether it's like, here's a thing called trauma that has particular manifestations and this exists outside of culture and then gets represented in culture versus here is a sort of way narrative works that then informs what we call trauma Mm -hmm. and how we diagnose it. There's this like sort of classic phrase in critical theory where you refer to things being like always already something which is always a sort of reminder that like you can't look at objects of study as though they exist outside of the whole sort of tangled world of ideas and texts and cultures and people because we're all always already in this world of texts and culture and people and ideas. And so thinking about that, like trauma is Mm -hmm. always already textualized. It's always already mediated. We can't have it outside of the world of representations of it. So like those things are so tangled together. Yeah. And if you look at the history of even the diagnosis of the formulation of the diagnosis of PTSD, when it first comes into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the publication by the American Psychological Association, it comes in and the definition talks about trauma as being something outside of the range of human experience, of normal human experience. So it's, you know, clinically, it has this idea that like trauma is something that happens outside and away from us, but it's embedded in our language, it's embedded in our narratives and our cultural norms and our histories. And that eventually does get changed in the early 90s, where trauma in 1994, in the updated version, is no longer this thing that is outside of, quote unquote, normal human experience. Which is, right. Mm. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) how does it start getting defined in 1994 if it's not like outside of normal human experience? You know, trauma has always been defined by, you know, being exposed to situations in which you fear that your life is in danger or the life of another person is in danger. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens in the 1990s is that trauma theory as a field has to really fight, you know, sort of face with this idea that like, who is considered normal, whose experiences are considered normal, right? Mm -hmm. Because PTSD emerges as a diagnosis for mostly white cis men who went to Vietnam and Korea and what the experiences that they came Mm -hmm. back with. And then we actually have to, you know, realize that trauma and, you know, the, the experiences that are traumatic have been a part of the everyday lives of lots of people for many, many hundreds of years, particularly for thinking about colonization. Mm -hmm. Just such a key piece of this conversation is like, what is it to think about sort of normative life as a life that unfolds without traumatic event? And then you've got, you know, these terrible, like an evil wizard comes and ruins it, literally. But otherwise, everything would have been fine were it not for the evil wizard versus thinking about trauma as a sort of systematic function of the way that the world has been organized such that some people are constantly exposed to heightened forms of trauma 
in the form of white supremacy, in the form of colonization, that are actually like a function of the sort of normalcy that, you know, people like Harry are sort of, their lives are expected to have. Which is, you know, a much more, like you said, a much more sort of cultural understanding, right? An understanding of trauma that insists that you widen the lens and look at the way a world is actually made up rather than fixating on sort of an individual's experiences and looking at those experiences as more or less sort of aberrant from what one would expect would be the norm. Like trauma is a muggle experience in and of itself. It doesn't just happen when wizards show up. Trauma, it's for muggles too. <laughs> it does it's true, it doesn't just happen when wizards show up. And that is that is an interesting piece about if we go back to that conversation about Harry and Ron and look at like Harry's trauma is so clinically trauma. Like it's so like here are some real bad things that happened to you when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. They are capital B bad. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about the difference between that and like a sort of like latent ongoing sense of non-safety that emerges just around a particular household dynamic that like as a child, you are not able to distinguish between something that's actually threatening your life and something that just makes you feel unsafe because those aren't really sort of readily distinguishable. And so, you know, can you experience some level of benign neglect as traumatic? Like there's really different registers happening there that I think are a reminder of how sort of context specific and complex these experiences are, even if there is sort of this like ready example the text provides us to go to. And also, I think, ties back in really helpfully to what Marcel pointed out about the sort of larger context of the wizarding world and like what it means for everybody to be collectively living in a world that has experienced this, these sort of larger traumatic events, you know, which is much closer to that sort of post-war, like Holocaust studies kind of sense of trauma theory, particularly because that like, First, Wizarding War is, like, kind of an allegory for the Holocaust. It looks sloppily, because I don't think Rowling's great at allegory. Yeah. I don't think it's a strong suit. So I still have some questions, Lucia. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Can I ask you some questions? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so in our next segment, we'll come back to sort of the specifics of Harry Potter and unpack them using the lens of trauma theory. So, Lucia, for you then, as a scholar of literature and as a scholar of trauma theory, how does trauma theory help us to understand a work of literature? So how does it help us to understand the world building function or the way that we might understand the characters and their motivations and their behaviors? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, especially because trauma theory in the 1990s, it's literary trauma theory in many, many ways. And it's really concerned with trauma as being something that's at the level of language. What we can and cannot represent is mm. basically, at its simplest, what the crux of trauma ends up mm. being in trauma theory. What can you what can you represent through language and what is unspeakable or unrepresentable? And I think 
you know, if you're looking at genres like memoir, it's maybe a little bit sort of not easier, but you can sort of see the the kinds of, you know, gaps or absences and the form might be a little bit more predictable. When, when you're looking at literature, particularly fantasy literature for a youth mm-hmm. audience, the kinds of tactics that you're going to use to represent trauma, I think are going to be quite different, which is why I think it's you have trauma that's really specifically represented through the physical. So whether it's the scar the sorting hat, the mirror, there are these touch points, these flash points to be able to talk about what language itself can't really get at. I think in terms of looking at it sort of literarily, is that a word? Literarily? I think it's important Mm -hmm. not just to look for gaps and absences, right? It's not important to just look for what characters do or do not say, but for sort of the broader narrative, right? Like, you know, again, that's why I kind of come back to the beginning of it, right? Like the boy who lived, what isn't being said, what is implied in talking about someone who lives. At its most basic, the reason why I think trauma theory is really valid as a sort of analytical framework is because it helps us to think through what is really hard to talk about. And you see these literary texts that are kind of sometimes going around trauma or crisscrossing it in different ways or mirroring it in order to try and make sense of it. And that when you're reading a text through trauma theory as a lens, you're not going to expect it to be laid out very clearly for you. Like the character is not going to say, and I was diagnosed with this. And like, it's not like a clinical set of notes on a case Mm, study of mm -hmm. a character. But for engaging with the (laughs) Mm -hmm. fundamental difficulty of literature, which is that language is insufficient at the best of times, and particularly when it comes to difficult things, when things are hard to represent through language, when we don't have words for them, when we maybe can't remember it, trauma theory is a way of engaging with the fact that books kind of, to use what Hannah said, always already fail in representation. (laughs) And we have to Mm. really navigate the limits of that failure, and also the possibility of that failure. That really makes me want to ask some questions about the difference between, like, justifying a character's behavior versus recognizing their in-text trauma Mm -hmm. versus thinking about how the text as a whole is structured, which I think is a good conversation for our next segment. With all this learning under our belts, we're ready for our owls, where we use our theories to unpack something new about Harry Potter. Hannah, do you think we're going to find out from a listener that it's actually pronounced owl? That, like, the plural for owls (laughs) is actually owl? I mean, fingers crossed. We're ready for our owl. (laughs) So just like with the other theories that we've introduced... Trauma theory is a way of helping us to understand the text, but that doesn't mean that it excuses the abusive behavior of characters or excuses the wizarding world's broken and oppressive systems that we see at work. I want to talk about Snape a lot, but I also don't want to spoil the seventh book for Lucia because Lucia hasn't read past the third book. So I think we should come back to this conversation in five books. Love it. I don't know how to count in six books. Okay. So we're not going to talk about Snape right now. 
I think we can certainly talk at a high level without going into the specifics about the idea of the adult characters as being also sort of survivors of this collective experience of trauma Mm -hmm. about, you know, Harry being a survivor and like what really interests me and stands out for me about what Lucia was saying is the difference between sort of as a reader functioning like an armchair psychologist Mm -hmm. whose job is to diagnose the characters in a book and use those diagnoses as a way to like excuse harmful behavior. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's a thing we see quite a lot in the fandom Mm -hmm. around Snape in particular, Mm -hmm. but around, you know, I think certainly we've had people suggest, and I don't want to get too far into this, but suggest similar things about like, you know, how much is Voldemort a function of Tom Riddle's trauma? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, how can we sort of psychologically read these characters Mm -hmm. versus what trauma theory itself encourages us to do, which is not to treat ourselves as though we are armchair psychologists, Mm -hmm. but is to actually attend to the narrative itself Mm -hmm. and to ask, like, how is the way that the story is structured, the language that's used, the way things are actually put together, what does that tell us Mm -hmm. about, you know, how this book is navigating or thinking about or representing trauma? Mm -hmm. And I think that the first thing that stands out to me is thinking about how important this series is for so many readers, Mm -hmm. which is a thing we've really been coming up against since Rowling has gone like full public mega turf Mm -hmm. and watching the like very real sense of loss and betrayal from readers. Mm -hmm. Like there's a real discourse on Twitter where people are like, oh, couldn't you tell? Like her books are so bad. Obviously she's a terrible person, which is like, wow, there's a lot to unpack there. Like not everybody who writes an uncreative book is a turf. So there's one thing. Also, <laughs> we could start with that. <laughs> there are a lot of people who have written great works of literature who are also terrible people. So like the one does not necessarily implicate the other in any way. <laughs> there's no causal relationship between sucking and the quality of your book. <laughs> But, you know, witnessing people's responses and for so many people, how important these books are. Mm -hmm. And a question I get asked all the time is like, why are these books so important Mm -hmm. to so many people? And I think thinking about trauma theory might help us to understand that a little bit more Mm -hmm. in the sense of like, what is this book doing to create a narrative space in which a child reader can navigate experiences of loss, absence, non-safety, instability, Mm -hmm. so that the narrative itself becomes a sort of opportunity to grapple with those things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thinking about how the story begins by giving us this character who is defined by survival, Mm -hmm. right? Survival as a sort of distinction from what happened to everybody else Mm -hmm. and then you know taking him through this movement from an outside to an inside right we've talked about this in sort of hero's journey Mm -hmm. right taking him from a space of unsafety and lack into a space of comparative sort of security and community Mm -hmm. and how that sort of that very narrative arc creates this opportunity to like process 
feelings of unsafety moving into a sort of feeling of safety. Like there's something about the promise of safety that Hogwarts offers Mm -hmm. that I think is key to how this book and this series has functioned for so many readers. Mm -hmm. That has a lot less to do with like any particular character's trauma and a lot more to do with how like the book itself structures a sort of movement from not enough to plenty, mm-hmm. right? No friends to lots of friends, no food to plentiful food, no secure adult figures to a bevy of secure adult figures. Like mm-hmm. this sort of presence and lack, like that is the first thing that stands out to me that feels like sort of trauma theory, like invites us to think more structurally about what what this book is doing. I mean, a critique of trauma theory is also that, you know, there's a difference between not being able to represent something and choosing not to, right? There's a difference between I can't talk about it and I don't want to talk about it. And I think that Harry Potter is, I mean, it's really, really interesting, even in this first book, where some things it's, again, as an adult reader, I'm just like, oh, we're just going to talk about the the murder of his parents? What? Right? And so I think that trauma theory helps us see, like, that those are informed narrative choices, and for me, it, it helps me as a reader understand that, like, no, like, we can and we are talking about this with and for young readers and adult readers alike. It's not that it's this gap in the narrative. The terrible thing is being explained. The terrible home, like, mm-hmm. living situation is being explained. And then I think from there, we can discuss, like, how is that done? How is that done in terms of narrative voice mm-hmm. or tone or other characterizations and how that's set up? So how is it done? Like, right, that idea of informed narrative choices is so interesting to think like, there are lots of gaps in this book. And a lot of them are just the characteristic gaps of a child narrator, right? We can talk about the sort of lack of nuance around the descriptions of the different houses, or the lack of insight into the motivations of adult characters, or like, you know, the way that people are either good or they're bad. And that that's something that really becomes nuanced as Harry's own ability to sort of perceive the complexity of human society and of individuals gets nuanced across the series. But you're absolutely right. The actual traumatic event isn't absent, especially because a third person narrator begins the book So like the first chapter is narrated by somebody else or by an omniscient narrator who like can sort of see the event in its totality and can just sort of describe it and like tell us right up front. But Harry doesn't know. And so as soon as we switch to Harry's perspective, all of a sudden there is this gap, but it's like a gap that we as readers have a like sort of ironic awareness of. Like we know right from the get-go, what Harry can't remember because we saw it. And he doesn't find out until chapters in. Like, you know, Hagrid is the one who tells him his parents were murdered. But we already knew that. And so what's the function of that to, like, both have this gap in Harry's own perspective, but to make sure that we as readers are aware that it's a gap from the get-go because we've been told what goes in that gap? That's a real Inception-style question. My brain is just like, <laughs> there's a gap, but we know about the gap, but then someone doesn't know about the gap. So does the gap exist? <laughs> does the gap exist? So, okay, Hannah, in our first episode of this reboot, and I'm sorry, I can't remember if this actually makes it into the episode or if it was just our banter, but you would pose the question like, 
how does being told that he's special influence Harry's decision making throughout the novel? And I think we can mm-hmm. ask a similar question about how does Harry's sudden discovery of the murder of his parents shape and direct his choices through the rest of the Mm. book because we know from the first or second chapter that he has recurring nightmares about a flash Mm -hmm. of green light and he because he's been told that his parents died in a car crash and that's how he got his scar so he believes that these nightmares are from the car crash and then Hagrid who is outraged that the Dursleys have lied to Harry about how his parents died Hagrid in his outrage explains to Harry what happened, but Harry doesn't have the opportunity or the guidance to reckon with that in, I would say, a a meaningful or a healthy way. It's just another piece of information in this cascade of, you're a wizard, Harry. Now let's get you an owl and some wizard gold. It's just one more thing. (laughs) You're a wizard, Harry. Also, your parents were murdered, but don't worry about it. I got you an ice cream anyway. (laughs) And here's an owl. (laughs) It's a lot. So Hedwig is for sure an emotional support owl, right? Oh, my God. Being like, I do not have the capacity to help you manage this trauma, but here's an owl. Okay, 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 okay. This is a sidebar. This is a sidebar. I do want to go back to Harry choosing to be a Gryffindor, but... Before we get there, what do we think about the possibility that children are allowed to bring animal familiars with them to Hogwarts as emotional support animals? That like, this was not always a thing that you did at Hogwarts. This is a like post-Wizarding War strategy that they implemented at Hogwarts because there's no actual like therapy. They just let everybody, they're like, we cannot get a school counselor, but we will let everybody bring an emotional support animal if they need. Think about it. Who are the people who have support animals? Harry has an owl. Hermione will eventually get a cat. Ron has a hand-me-down rat. And Neville has a toad. We don't really see any other characters with animals, but we know that Harry has experienced trauma. We can surmise that Hermione, well, no, we see Hermione experience trauma in book two for sure. Yeah. And we will come to learn, well, we also know that Neville has experienced trauma, but then we'll come to learn more details about Neville's trauma and he's got his toad. Anyway. We never see these animals functioning as familiars or assisting the characters in their magic. Like they're just there. Except for Hedwig delivering mail occasionally she's helpful she's helpful but she's not like a they're just there for a hugging yeah <laughs> anyway that was a sidebar what a thrilling and exciting opportunity i mean it's a sidebar but it's a sidebar i want to keep going down because yeah. i'm also like how does the emotional support animal that you have reflect the way that you sort of process or relate to your trauma for example you know hedwig as an emotional support animal that's not an animal that you like hug mm-hmm. or are cozy mm-hmm. with or sleep in the bed with you right she's sort of distant Mm -hmm. and like she's attentive but she's not super attentive which sort of suggests this like you know he's maybe not super ready to like Mm -hmm. internalize these experiences but she's sort of like there Mm -hmm. for like companionship Mm -hmm. like when he is ready to actually process it and will flood you with letters flood you and your house with letters being like it's time to Mm -hmm. face it it's time to face something oh my god 
letters that are metaphors for filling in those gaps <laughs> that you're not yet ready to process. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just letters everywhere. Oh, my God. Just a house full of letters flying through the air. Scabbers, who is just a colossal disappointment. <laughs> Which we'll talk about in book three, but, you know. I was like, <laughs> colossal disappointment and also, as it turns out, not a rat. <laughs> um, uh, this is incredible. Mm-hmm. I love this so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's return to the question of... Okay. So Harry choosing to be in Gryffindor. So both you and I, Hannah, are enchanted by Lucia's thinking of the houses as different ways to like process and negotiate trauma. So to me, it makes sense that because Harry is being put in this position in which he needs to just keep calm and carry on, it makes sense that of course he's going to choose Gryffindor, even though he doesn't like, he doesn't really know what he's choosing, but he's just like, he just has these like little snippets of ideas. And so just like buckling down and and moving through, it makes sense to me that the brave house is the choice that he makes because so much of the way that he is expected to respond to his many traumas is by just braving it, just going, oh, you're a wizard? Go. (laughs) Hermione too. (laughs) That expectation is so key because what is Harry basing his sense that he wants to be a Gryffindor on? It's the fact that he Mm -hmm. met a few of them and they were nice. Like, Mm -hmm. that's what he's got. He has no deeper understanding of the world of the houses. He just met some Gryffindors and they were nice. And when you think about, like, what might a child use to model the way that they respond to traumatic events, I mean, both the text itself sort of offers these models, Mm -hmm. but also, like, you look to your peers, you look to people around you, you look to just, like, you know, how can I see the different options that I have? And so it's like, You know, he enters this world. The first people he meets are these Gryffindors. And he's like, cool, well, Mm -hmm. I'll do that. Like, (laughs) what if Harry had run into a friendly Hufflepuff family Mm -hmm. on his first day visiting Diagon Alley? And they had been really, really nice to him and helped him navigate this world. And he would have been like, well, I guess I want to be a Hufflepuff because I met them and they were nice. And it feels like with being brought like a metric ton of letters that like the insistence Mm -hmm. of like, you can't ignore this. You're a wizard. This isn't a choice. Mm -hmm. And then the hat being like, are you sure you're not a Slytherin? Like, I see that as like (laughs) this moment where Harry's like, I have agency. And it might not be a lot because I didn't Mm -hmm. choose to be a wizard. And I didn't choose all Mm -hmm. of this other stuff. But it feels like a really, really important moment of asserting agency within Hogwarts because Hogwarts is not a place where you automatically get agency to do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. it's true. He doesn't actually choose to be Gryffindor. He just chooses not mm-hmm. Slytherin. He's just very specific that he does not want to be Slytherin. It's anything but mm-hmm. Slytherin. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely a first moment of agency in response to these like overwhelming things happening all around him and to him. You know, it's so interesting to think about the function of all of these gaps and all of these absences throughout this text and how, like, the whole book seems to be an arc from, like, not knowing to knowing, from not understanding to understanding, right? That 
there is this sort of structural sense that the goal is to fill in the gaps. The goal is to take what you can't remember and remember it, to take what you don't know and know it, to take what you don't understand and understand it. Like that is the movement through the narrative. And like I constantly find the first chapter of this book to be an interesting theoretical challenge because it is so odd in so many ways in terms of a sort of opening framing. But once we are dropped into Harry's perspective, it's like everything about his life is unexplained. He doesn't know what happened to his parents. He doesn't know why he has these nightmares. He doesn't know why the Dursleys treat him the way they do. He doesn't know why weird, inexplicable things keep happening to him. Like, he just doesn't know any of it. And then the book is a series of answers until we reach an ending where it kind of seems like everything's been answered. Like, we get it. Everything's been resolved. We know what those nightmares about. We know what it means to be a wizard. We know why the Dursleys treat him the way they do. We know, like, we know everything and the ending is settled. And then with each subsequent book, we encounter new gaps and we find new questions. And so it becomes this iterative process that it's like, at the beginning, you don't know things. And then you go to Hogwarts. And you learn the answers to those things. And at the end, that you know them. And then at the beginning of the next book, here's a pile of new, more complicated things you don't know. And then you go back to Hogwarts. And then over the process of the year, you come to understand them. And they're usually, usually that's not happening in the classroom. Usually that's happening around other situations. But like, it is this sort of process of like iteratively filling in gaps and then encountering new ones as though like at a textual level the books are both making an argument that like gaps can be filled trauma could be healed what is absent can be turned into presence but is also showing that it's like an iterative process that there is a movement towards healing and a movement towards resolution but one that is never completed mm-hmm. and i think too that like there also comes a point in the series where not only are we introduced to new gaps, but we start to get information that informs us of gaps that we were not previously aware of. So like exactly, Ms. Yeah. Mrs. Fig, for example, who we learn of in the first book and then actually turns out to be a person of interest <laughs> later on, which I won't say anything about, Lucia. Yeah, the, the new gaps don't only come from new traumatic events, mm-hmm. of which there are plenty throughout the series, <laughs> but also come from Harry's own shifting understanding and his own sort of constantly more sophisticated ability to grapple with the world, mm-hmm. right? So like Snape, for example, becomes more of a narrative gap the more Harry is able to sort of look at this person and like try to account for his behavior. Mm-hmm. It's like when you're playing a video game and you do a level for the first time at the easy setting mm-hmm. and then you like up the difficulty <laughs> and keep going. And it's like you're going through the same sort of set of challenges over and over again. It's got this recurring feel to it, but also the like difficulty rating keeps getting amped up as you go. I really like your point though, Hannah, about like being that these gaps are constantly revealed, but they're not always like a gap is Where's the trauma? Where is it? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know it's around. (laughs) 
I mean, if you look at trauma theory as a field and lots of the critiques that have come up, particularly in the past 20 years, because trauma theory is so based on Freud and his theory of repression, it's sort of like sometimes it's not individually repressed. It's that other people are deliberately hiding information, which is what we do as a society, but also that gaps and absences are a part of our daily life as well. Like, I don't know what I had for lunch a week ago, right? Like we forget things and we forget good things. We forget joyful things and not because it's sort of traumatic, but that it just brains can't hold all of that. And so I think looking at the texts in a similar way is sort of, you know, you're starting off with such an intense chapter and it's such an intense first book that I think it can be tempting to sort of read all of the gaps, like all of the subsequent gaps as there is a terrible thing behind this. But I think a more sort of robust trauma theory reading allows for both of those things to exist and also space for the characters to make their own inferences and develop their own attitudes to information that was previously missing or that they just didn't have the capacity to kind of understand at the time. And readers too, right? Like those gaps are part of how we have in the past accounted for the robust Mm -hmm. world of fan fiction that has emerged around these books. Like there's a lot of gaps that are not necessarily trauma gaps, but are just like wonderful opportunities. (laughs) (laughs) Just wonderful opportunities. Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode five of Witch, Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or ohwitchplease.ca, or of course, wherever podcasts are found. Witch, Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to our brilliant and ever-patient producer. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. And thanks to you, witches, for coming with us on this new journey. If you're into the reboot, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. Every week, we'll read the names of the authors of five-star reviews here. So you've got to review us if you want to hear Marcel mispronounce your name. We haven't recorded an episode in a bit, so we've got a small backlog. So Marcel, buckle up. Thank you for the five-star reviews. Soph DK, Brittany O, <laughs> O, OK, Eb, Wakakurku. Yep, perfect. Keep going. Mitchell J. Hunter, Wenway Fisher, Nooney5690, Valerius JKA, Capt Sparrow. Oh, Capt Sparrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anna Borgia, The Fage, The Fage, The Fage, Gemma Liz 93, Rachel Hall 85, Avani, no, that's not a six, that's a G, Avani G, Twakers, Hansi Drew, Naplak, Pen Plus Paper, The Fairy's Revenge, Roy Gio, Roigio, or maybe Roigio, Kelsey Will, Jasmine in Wonderland, Snail Breath, Niflor Friend, The Rice Pudding, Elster Elster Barton, 
Layla81, Mia Jade, Slight Full, Mix Artemisia, Sal- Salbor, 1412RLR, Harmony Umbrella, Justina Bean 2.0, Moderate Critic, PK Honey, Inga Langfeld, KBC 1518, or maybe that's 1518, Nova Don Marrow, Red Haired Retail Worker, oh, that was a rough one, just kidding, that was awesome, Happy Camper, but that's happy with many P's, Happy P Camper, Caroline XYZ, and Sydney E, or Sydney underscore E, and apologies if we missed anyone. I'm not sorry if I mispronounced your name, because that, I guess, is the whole point of this segment. It's my favorite segment! You've all been so enthusiastic with your reviews, and we truly can barely keep up. Thank you so much. Oh, Oh, I love watching Marcel gradually lose a grasp of how language works. It just, whew, wow, fills my heart with joy. I just got canker sores in my mouth trying to read those words. (laughs) Yes. Also, don't forget, we've started a Patreon where you can help keep this project going and gain access to that solid gold bonus content, of which there is already so much. You are missing out. (laughs) If you are not on our Patreon, it is a wild ride. You can check it out at patreon.com slash ohwitchplease. On our next episode, we'll be concluding our journey through Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone by stepping back to think about the book as a whole. But until then... Later, witches. Witches.